Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I guess the uh, children are dismissed at this time. Is that correct? I believe so. Okay, I am not used to... Can you just bring this mic down a bit? Uh, I am not used to holding on to a mic. Our Thai mic is having some struggles. Uh, it might be on its last leg. We'll have to see. But uh, So I'm going to get used to this. I'm probably going to bonk things, so forgive me if that happens. But Luke chapter 1, if, if you would. I remember when I was a kid, I absolutely loved Christmas morning. I was always the first one. Anybody else first? I wasn't the first born, but I was the first one up every Christmas morning. And I would go downstairs. Come on now. I would go downstairs, and what would you do? You would look under the Christmas tree, and what would you do next? You would shake your presents, wouldn't you? Do we have any shakers in the audience tonight? Shakers? Jim, you're a shaker. Really? I didn't know. Hmm. Yeah, and so you want to find, you're wondering and you're trying to guess. It's, maybe it's people who love puzzles. I don't know, but I always wanted to guess. Uh, sometimes I was really bad and I found the presents before Christmas, before they got wrapped. Uh, that wasn't good. But um, my mom had a special place where she would stash them. And, you know, that, that always kind of mixed me up because we were taught that there was a Santa Claus. And then what are so many presents doing in my mom's closet? Anyway, uh, I couldn't put two and two together. But I can remember some of those gifts. Do you remember some of the gifts you got as, as a kid? Uh, I remember a bicycle with a banana seat and the, uh, hang in a second here. I had to write this down because it's a sissy bar. That was the name of it, the sissy bar. Isn't that thing that was in the back? Yeah, okay. And a stingray handlebars, okay. All right. Had a little little water container so you could go long distances, like more than a mile, I guess. And uh, I remember getting a 007 briefcase, and you press a button, and it takes like two seconds, and it turned into a, this awesome rifle. But I also remember I wanted a BB gun. Anybody in the crowd tonight, you wanted a BB gun? Wanted a BB gun? Okay, did you get your BB gun? Did you really? I never got my BB gun. Do you know why? That's right. You shoot your eye out, Michael. So instead, we got air rifles. Anybody ever get an air rifle? You know what an air rifle is? It has an opening about three-quarters of an inch in diameter. And you cock it, and it blows out air. Yeah. How boring is that, right? So as a kid, you had to be creative. So we would take the air rifle, we would cock it, and jam the tip into the dirt, and then guess what it would shoot? Yes. One Christmas, our yard looked like a scene from the movie Holes, okay? Yeah, you, you had to be gracious. You couldn't creep up on your brother and blast him, you know, within just a few feet. You had to, yeah, that wasn't ever fun, getting sprayed in the face with something like that. But I know for myself, I really, really enjoyed receiving presents. Honestly, it took many years for me to grow out of that to the point, I mean, I still like getting gifts, by the way, okay? There's a couple of books, maybe I didn't tell you about that, I would, anyway, I, I, I like getting gifts, but when, when I became a Christian, 
that changed. When I got married, it changed even more. When I had kids, it changed even more. And you know, I'm at the place. I love giving gifts. Uh, my wife takes the brunt of the duty in, in purchasing gifts, but it's fun to get gifts, isn't it? But there is something within me as I was growing up that was totally about Mike Curtis. By the way, if you're new, that's my name. Yeah, so great. Mike Curtis, he's Mike. Anyway, I. It was all about me. And I wanted to do something great one day. But I had this problem because my life was all about me. I wanted to be that baseball player that in the bottom of the ninth hits that grand slam home run that wins the game five to four and wins the series, okay? That actually happened, but it was against my Phillies in 94. Oh, that hurt. And they lost the World Series. But I wanted to be that, or, or that football player who in the, in the last second of the game jumps, has to jump, jumps to get that touchdown pass and lands in the end zone. TD, wins the Super Bowl. And you know, stuff like that were, was what I dreamed about, the Olympics. And, and it was all about me, all about me. When I became a Christian, that all changed. <laughs> so I thought. And instead, you know, instead of, you know, football or baseball or you name it, now it was, I wanted to do God's thing, but it was still about me. I wanted to start a Christian rock band and tour the world, of course. I wanted to be an evangelist and speak in front of thousands. And God had to show me, Mike, it is still all about you, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but the bottom line is I wanted my life to count. Now, I would venture to say there is something in your heart right now that wants, that really wants your life to count, to mean something. But the question is, what does that look like? How do, how do I live a life that really counts, that really has meaning and impact? What a blessing it was for me, and I mentioned to some of you, but when my dad passed away, I had the privilege of, of being there for the funeral. God blessed us with getting tickets up there and back. But so many people, I'd never met them. I'd heard their names from my dad, but they were excellent in track or cross country or sports my dad coached. And he had a number of state cross country um, championships and a, a track and field championship, and some of these guys showed up. I mean, that was, what, the 60s? That was like 50 years ago. And they came up to me and they said, you're one of Dave Curtis's sons, right? Said, I just want you to know that your dad really impacted my life. He wasn't just one of those teachers that did a fine job teaching, and he was passionate what he taught in 12th grade English, but he impacted my life, and I am who I am today because of your dad. It, that, that, that just stirred my heart. It blessed me because my dad, he tried to live a life that counts. How do we do that? What does a life that counts look like? Many times we think, well, if I do something great, then I will be great, and therefore my, my, my life must count, must mean something, must have significance. But I'm going to tell you what. That type of mentality is something as Christians we need to grow out of. Because when we look at our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at Mary, we're going to see a very, very different picture. So go ahead and read with me, uh, follow with me in your Bibles. 
starting with verse 30, Luke chapter 1, verse 30. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you'll give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Asked, Mary asked this, the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month for nothing is impossible with God. Now, listen to Mary's response to all of this. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Jesus was a pretty awesome guy. God taking on flesh like you and me and changing the world. Pretty awesome. By the way, Cole, I didn't realize that you were going to be back by this time. Welcome. I, I did not realize that. Good to see you, brother. He's been uh, just having a really hard time in life in uh, Hawaii there for a few weeks. Doing some work, earning some money. So pretty awesome way that came, came to be. But as we look at the life of Jesus here, he is going to be called Jesus for what reason? Because the name Jesus means Savior, one who saves. He, uh, savior, or literally it's saver, saver. He was the one who was going to say, save people, as the angel told Joseph, save people from the Israelites from their sins. He was going to save his people from their sins, from their sins. Not just forgiveness here, but we're talking about a rescuing from our sins. I mean, the, as a kid, that's what I needed. I was 14 when I gave my heart to Christ. I became a Christian. Been to church all of my life. Not until I was 14 did I really understand who Jesus was, that he was my Savior. He was the one who came not just to forgive my sins, but to rescue me from my sins. And he began this incredible transformation that he started still doing today. But Jesus is our Savior. He's the Son of the Most High. He didn't become the Son of God. He was not adopted as the Son of God, as Mormons believe. He was the Son of God from all of eternity to all of eternity. We want to get our theology right here. Jesus was God, is God, and always will be God. He is to be the king. He is to sit on David's throne right now, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is seated in the heavenly realms on the throne of David. He has inherited this kingdom. It has been given to him. <clears throat> and he talks about this in Luke 22, and he says now to his apostles, I'm conferring a kingdom to you. Guys, I'm going up there. Come on now. I'm going to be cheering you on. I'm paraphrasing. But... That he is the king. I, I don't know about you, and I'm thinking through Savior, Son of God, King, forever. It says King forever. That's pretty awesome. But Jesus, though he was the Son of God forever and ever, he had to become 
the Savior. Now, here's something that's interesting. He was God, and therefore he was Savior from all of eternity. But he came to this earth now to accomplish something, and I would say his life counted, but he had to accomplish salvation for us. So he was Savior, but then he became the Savior because he died on the cross. I mean, he was there when he rescued the Israelites from Egypt. He was there, and Paul says he was that rock when he was when he was hit, the water came out. He was the one who provided. He was the one who sent the manna, and he saved them. But when he died on the cross, he rescued and saved us from our sins, so he became Savior. He has always been king, but he came to be king for his people. And that was something that he accomplished. Now, here's what Philippians tells us. So we see all of these awesome things that Jesus either was or became. Jesus, when he came to this earth, had to accomplish things. And now, though, if you were to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to see a little twist, so to speak, in the story here. Because we need to realize that not only was Jesus fully God, but he was fully man. Paul says in, in Philippians 2.5, he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature or form, morphos, we get metamorphosis from this word, morphos, form, who being in the very form or nature, essence, God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto. But what did he do? He emptied himself and became nothing. He emptied himself and became nothing. And it goes on and says that he took on the very nature, again, morphos, form, essence. He took on the essence of a servant being made in human likeness. And he humbled himself, and, and being in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, he was exalted. He was exalted, it says, and given the, to the highest place and given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, at the name of Savior, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus was exalted. Jesus accomplished everything that he needed to do, but to do it, what did he have to do? He had to, it says it there, he had to empty himself. Um, if I had time, I would love to kind of unwrap this word emptied far more than I'm going to do right now. I mean, chapters in theology books, page after page, delve into this concept of what does it mean that God emptied himself? Emptied himself. This word empty is this word kenosis, of, of becoming nothing or emptying himself to, to become like us in the form of a servant, in the appearance as a man. I want you to think about this. 
God, who is infinite, clothes himself with what is finite. Can you imagine what it would be like to be God, and now you had to learn your ABCs or Aleph Bet Gimels? That you had to learn how to count? You're God, and you have to learn how to count? Jesus did. Because in taking on human flesh, he had to learn. As a baby born on that Christmas morning, he cried. I'm sure he looked up at his mother, not from the vantage point and the full-scoped intelligence of God himself that knows everything, but as a baby with very limited intelligence at that time. And to understand all of this can truly blow our minds. Jesus purposefully took upon himself the frailty of human flesh. And he purposefully limited himself. He not only became frail, but he was at the mercy of his mother, his father, and their provision for him. The God superintended all of this, don't get me wrong. But I want you to see the degree to which Jesus emptied himself and humbled himself and truly became nothing. Here is God infinite taking on finite flesh. I mean, my, the NIV says, but made himself nothing. It's, it really is emptied himself. But God taking that step down is from God's perspective, God becoming nothing. Do you see the irony of that? Wow. This is what God did for me. He stepped out of all the glories of heaven for me and for you. Because his purpose was to suffer as we suffered and to be tempted as we are tempted, but not to sin. So that you become that perfect, awesome, incredible sacrifice that at age 33, my goodness, I passed 33 20 years ago, and Jesus by age 33, about there, he, he accomplished everything within the Father's will. Whoa! And at age 33, that's when he laid his life down, and he took upon himself my sins and your sins. And to the degree, and this, I, I don't completely get this. Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. It was as if by taking on my sins, he owned them. They, they, be, they became him. And he was now being punished as if he was the culpable one, not me not you. That's what Jesus did. He emptied himself. Now, we kind of expect this. I mean, God, who is awesome in character, this is something that he would do, but he invites us to do the very same thing and empty ourselves. Now, for Jesus, that emptying was a really good thing. It was, it was he, he emptied himself of what was really good, is what I'm saying. But we are being invited to empty ourselves, not of those things that are good, but of those things that are of our flesh. I want you to look at, at Mary here for a moment. If you were to describe, now before I get into to Mary, I'm sorry, I wanted to, I, I wanted to read this. This is, this is kind of captures this essence of Jesus emptying himself 
so that he would be the most exalted, most powerful one that ever walked planet Earth. It's a poem entitled One Solitary Life. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30 when public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was, where he was born. He did none of these things, usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone now about 20 centuries, have come and gone. And today, Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Some time ago, Napoleon the first emperor of France, one of the greatest military commanders of all time. Napoleon knew about shaping history, and this is what he said about Jesus. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of people would die for him. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me, and his will confounds me. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything that can approach the gospel. That is about a man who lived a life that counted. Now, as we move to Mary, we see that Mary has been highly favored by God. This is what the angel says there in verse 20. Excuse me, I'm looking in the wrong. Here we go, Luke chapter one, not Philippians. Luke chapter one. Let's go back there. In verse 28, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. I want to ask you a question. What made Mary highly favored? What was it about her? Was she born in royalty? No, she was actually very poor. When Mary and Joseph went to the temple for Mary's purification, instead of sacrificing a lamb, the law gave allowance for the poor that they would sacrifice either two pigeons or two doves. 
And that's what Mary and Joseph did, indicating that they were poor. Apparently, after they came back from the temple is when God blessed them with the gold. And I can only imagine having been sent by an angel in a dream that very night, they then left to Egypt. They used the gold for that occasion. God provided just before they had to flee for their lives. You remember the story, Herod killing the babies and such. But she was poor. No doubt she grew up poor. It says that she was also humble. Look at this. It says Mary, as she's glorifying God, she's visiting um, Elizabeth, her cousin, and she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Verse 48, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his, what does your Bible say? His, his servant. That's how she viewed herself. I'm God's servant. When the angel spoke to her and said that the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, you're going to overshadow you. Uh, even though you're a virgin, you're going to give birth to a baby. Even though you have not known a man, you're going to give birth to a baby. How can this be? And the angel explains, and she says, so be it unto me. I'm your, I'm, I'm your servant. So be it. What a humble humble heart. She was also a woman of faith. She was poor. She was humble. She was a woman of faith. It says right there, when, when she comes in to Elizabeth's house, the baby inside of Elizabeth leaps for joy. Woohoo! Apparently, there's just this spiritual sensitivity, because remember, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, and, and the, the, the Spirit is in him, and he recognizes that the, the, the baby inside Mary's womb is the son of God. And Elizabeth recognizes this because she says in verse 42, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Awesome. She says this in verse 45. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Now, I, I think she ends it with this, and I don't think it's meant to be a dig towards her husband, but she does remember when Zechariah, her husband, was in the temple, he did not believe that God was going to do what he said he was, what the angel said he was gonna, God was going to do. They were, she was going to give birth. They were going to call his name John. He's going to um, pretty much turn the people's hearts to God. And he basically says, in so many words, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And he, he's, he was punished, disciplined. He could not speak. That actually worked in favor because when he did speak, what a sign that was that this child was special. But Elizabeth has this in mind, you know, my husband didn't believe, and I think he finally does, but you, Mary, you believed what the angel spoke to you. Now, this concept of believe means more than just passively accepts it, believes that it's going to happen. 
It means to actively embrace it. Embrace what? Understand when that Mary was going to, she was going to have a virgin birth. That doesn't happen like every day, does it? In fact, it's happened only one time ever in the world. So it was a miracle. But understand, she knew the implications of this. She was going to be pregnant before she was married. She was going to give birth, and people would say about her that she did so illegitimately. There would be a stigma upon her, upon her family. And Jesus himself would have to bear this stigma as well. Now, we don't see a lot of it in the Gospels. 200 AD, when the Jewish Talmud was actually written down, it was oral and written down, 200 AD, it says about Jesus that he was born illegitimately. It also says that he was a sorcerer. They had no other way to explain his miracles. It gives tacit credence to the fact that Jesus really did do miracles. This is by Jews, the enemies of Christianity at that time, and it basically says Jesus was a miracle worker. Jesus, though, was the child of a woman because she apparently had sex with this Roman soldier. They actually give him a name, Pantera, and did so out of wedlock. And so Jesus was born illegitimately. And she knows this. And so when, when Elizabeth is saying, blessed are you because you believed it, it's more than just, okay, I understand it's going to happen. I can accept that. But she embraced this stigma that was going to be with her for the rest of her life. Mary... I would say, lived a life that counted. It says that the Holy Spirit came upon her. That's a phrase that we also that Luke also uses in the book of Acts. Remember, the Holy Spirit came upon them. That means empowered them. The idea that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. This is a Greek word that's also used in the, the, uh, trans, the transfiguration of Jesus. And on that mountain, it says that a cloud overshadowed them. And if you, in the NIV, I think it translates it quite well. It enveloped them. It was all around them, everywhere. This cloud enveloped them. The Holy Spirit was going to do this kind of incubating with Mary, even as the Holy Spirit hovered over and kind of incubated upon the waters during creation in Genesis 1-2. And then from that, God's creating power flows. Even so, the same Holy Spirit is hovering over, incubating, overshadowing, enveloping Mary, and she was going to conceive and give birth to the Son of God. Awesome song, by the way, earlier tonight. Mm. What did Mary do? That was great. I mean, she lived a life that counted. So what did she do that was great? For nine months, she labored. And after nine months, she gave birth to the Son of God. For the next 30 years... However, she raised this son of God. That was her greatness. That is what Mary is known for, for being 
a mom. This isn't even Mother's Day. But I want to tell you what, Mary was an incredible woman, but she lived in obscurity. Her greatness was found in the very simple day-to-day interaction, raising the Son of God. Remember, Jesus, he didn't come knowing his ABCs and one, two, threes and multiplication and additions and all of this. He had to learn them, and he had to learn the Bible, the Word of God. He had to learn it. Mary impacted him. Mary fed him everything, and Joseph, sorry, guys, and Joseph fed him everything that he needed to grow and walk in the stature of the call that the Father had upon him. I would say by the age 12, Luke tells us by the age 12, he kind of understood the call of God on his life. But we have to realize that Mary poured herself into her child. She sacrificed so much. I believe that the pathway to living a life that counts is this process of emptying ourselves. Jesus emptied himself, stepped down into humanity, and he rescued humanity. Mary, humble, poor, believing and willing to take upon herself this stigma that she would that would she would carry with her for the rest of her life she embraced that she emptied herself and she said i am your servant be it to me exactly as you have said that is humility that is this idea of emptying ourselves of me. Jesus said, if you would follow me, if you want to be my disciple, then he says, deny self, take up your cross, and follow me. That is what we're talking about tonight. That is this emptying process that Mary embraced. Can I ask you, what do you need to be emptied of? What do you need to be emptied of? Deny self, take up your cross, follow him. It's it's about me. John the Baptist put it this way. He said, excuse me, he must increase, I must decrease. That's this concept, emptying me of myself. Everything about me, promoting me, pleasing me. You know, this doesn't tend to bode too well in businesses these days because businesses are all about me getting promoted, me taking that next step. Now, I believe that we should work hard and we should use the gifts and talents and intelligence and skills that God's given us and seek to grow in them, but we have to stop thinking that this life is all about me. It is about pouring ourselves. It's about me emptying myself of me. Jesus emptied himself and took on the very nature of a servant. Mary said, I am your servant. Be it to me just as you've said. What do you need to be emptied of? I'm just going to brag on my wife a little bit if I can. My wife never ceases to amaze me. She is a woman who embodies, in my opinion, this concept of emptying. When we got married, we talked about the possibility of homeschooling. My wife, uh, a very intelligent woman, um, went through 
University of Delaware four-year degree in nursing, and at the time it was a fledgling program. They had revamped it and kind of put nursing on steroids, if you will, and she was the first class to go through this, kind of like guinea pigs. Almost half of them failed. She got A's and B's in all of her courses. She graduated with a very high GPA. When she graduated from the University of Delaware, she served as a nurse. When Kate was born, she gave it all up. She gave up a good paying salary. She gave up future ambitions in nursing. She laid everything down because she had always had one goal in life, aside from serving and pleasing Jesus, and of course being married. She wanted to raise as many kids as God gave her. And her life now became all about her children. She cared for her kids. She educated her kids. She sacrificed. She emptied herself. And in emptying herself, I'm going to say my wife became great. And on Mother's Day, my kids try to hold back, but on Mother's Day, all of my kids could go on and on and on. This is who my mom is. She's an amazing woman. Just these past couple of weeks, we have been in the process, as if life wasn't busy enough, right? My, my, my wife's aunt, has uh, she broke her leg. She's in a wheelchair and has been in a wheelchair now for five months about. And she's trying hard to walk, but we realize she can't live in her own apartment anymore. So my wife... She just, she ran with the ball, and she has gotten us, she's rallied people to help us, she's emptying her apartment, cleaning it, um, she's moved stuff around in our house, that took months to do, reorganizing closets and rooms and studies, <sighs> yes, but you know, it had to be done, I understand that, and so all of her Mimi stuff is now in my study, and we just revamped our house, and she just went, pro she just step by step, and it was a process. It was a huge process. And she has given up so much. And even when, you know, God bless her Aunt Mimi, sometimes can be difficult to work with. She loved her, and she sacrificed, and cheerfully, cheerfully visited her, has done all of this that I have mentioned, and, and I, I just was thinking about that today, and I sent her a text, and I said, you are an amazing woman. You have so served selflessly. I think my wife is great. And it's not because she's authored 40-plus books or anything. It's not because she's had the platform and, on national stages. Maybe that will come one day, sweetie. But it's because she has given of herself. That's what her life is, giving of herself. So I want to ask you, are you living a life that counts? What do you need to do? What do I need to do to live that life that counts? For Jesus, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, and he took on the nature of a servant. For Mary, his mother, she emptied herself, and she said, I am your servant. Be it to me as I as you." as you have planned. I want your will more than mine. I mean, as a, she was probably a teenager. I know she had dreams of all of these things. And now, wow, to bear the son of God. Oh, but by the way, 
you're going to have this stigma of being a loose woman for all of your life. Now, I'm sure Mary's character shone through that. Maybe some were convinced. But the truth is, she emptied herself and she served. And my question is, is, as we're looking at this life of Jesus and how he emptied himself and served, what, in what way do we need to do that? To empty ourselves, to deny self, take up my cross, and live this life that counts. Can you stand with me? Father, there is something in our hearts that beats and says, yes, I want to live a life that counts. And yet, Father, the cost of that is everything that we have. It's every ambition laid down at the foot of the cross. It's the extraction of me and selfishness, and it's the filling of this attitude of a servant. Let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, emptied himself. Father, that, that's what I want, and it is so hard. And I, I pray for each of us, God, that we would learn this art of selflessness and servanthood and emptying of ourselves and stop aspiring to accomplishing great things that we might be great. But God, we would live totally for you. Right now, we just again say, Jesus, get rid of me. Help me die to me and to live for you. May you increase and may my Curtis decrease. Please, God. That is our prayer. You are awesome. This Christmas, Lord, may that be our thought, that the Son of God emptied himself and became like us to accomplish my salvation. Jesus, you are awesome. In Jesus' name.